I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Hamid Ismailov on his EBRD Literature Prize winning novel, The Devil's Dance. Hamid Ismailov is an Uzbek journalist and writer who was forced to flee Uzbekistan in 1992 due to what the state dubbed unacceptable democratic tendencies. He came to the United Kingdom, where he took a job with the BBC World Service. His works are banned in Uzbekistan. Several of his Russian original novels have been published in English translation, including The Railway, The Dead Lake, which was long-listed for the 2015 Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, and The Underground. The Devil's Dance, which we're going to be talking about today, is the first of his Uzbek novels to appear in English, and the translation by Donald Rayfield has just won the 2019 EBRD Literature Prize. Hamid, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for inviting me and for having me. I want to talk about the title of the novel first. It's The Devil's Dance in English. And inside the novel, it gives us the the original translated title, which I can't read. But it also refers to the, to the legend of the jinn as well, as well as the devil. Tell me something about that title. So the title is an easy one because uh, there was a short story by the protagonist of this novel, by the main character of this novel, an iconic Uzbek writer, Abdullah Qadri. And it's called The Devil's Dance. In fact, uh, there are different translations of uh, this, you know, of this title, because some people, they prefer to say the Feast of Devils. The other people are saying uh, Dance of Devils. We decided to go for uh, the Devil's Dance because it's very uh, snappy. It's dancey. So it catches exactly what we wanted to catch. Why I decided to use this particular, uh, especially in Uzbek, for example, why I decided to use this title of Abdullah Qadri? Because for me, the Soviet period, especially what Abdullah Qadri was through, arrested by the Stalinian uh, regime, at the same time, he has been he was betrayed at that time by his colleagues, writers, you know, the same Uzbek writers who were on the one hand admiring his prose, admiring his personality. On the other hand, they were writing these 
complaints and uh, letters to the KGB in order to arrest him. And he was arrested because of them. So it was kind of devil's dance, especially the role which NKVD, uh, later it became KGB, uh, NKVD played in all of that. They, in fact, there was sort of, you know, narrative against narrative, narrative of Uh, for example, of the writer Abdullah Qadri, and at the same time, the narrative of the NKVD. They considered him as a nationalistic, you know, uh, very uh, sort of, you know, kind of very narrow-minded nationalist and so on and so forth. Whereas he, when we read him, we found completely different personality. So there was a clash of the narratives here as well, which was like the devil's dance, you know. Whatever you think, for example, on the one hand, there were angelic promises of the October Revolution, yeah? You will be living in the paradise in this world. But it ended up with the devil's dances. And so Kadiri, Abdullah Kadiri, who's the, the real-life Uzbek writer that is the main protagonist of this story, and the story you tell here is of a, a legendary lost novel of his, an idea that he had for a novel, and so you retell that story as well, as well as his story. Basically, it's, it's a few months of his life under arrest by the NKVD. Tell us something more about his life before then and his work. He was uh, one of the representatives of those people who, you know, were quite young when the October Revolution has happened. And as I said already, you know, the October Revolution promised completely new world, that everyone will be equal, every, uh, you know, those three ideas, fraternité, liberté, égalité, so equality, uh, brotherhood and uh, liberty. So they promised the same. And he was one of those young people who believed into it. He accepted, in a way, October Revolution. But it turned out, little by little, he was seeing what it turns into. He was uh, clever enough, you know, to understand where it's going, you know. All of a sudden, they were more equal than equals, for example, uh, more fraternal than uh, sort of, you know, brothers, etc., etc., you know. So he started to understand it very quite early in the 20s and therefore he was quite an open-minded person who wasn't afraid to criticize even the presidents of that time. You know, he criticized in one of his satirical essays the leader of Uzbekistan at that time and immediately was arrested in 1926. And he was a kind of person, a rare person, for whom the morals and the values played enormous role, you know. During this trial, during his last speech, he said, you better kill me because I can't return to the circle of those people who betrayed me. How I am going to look into their eyes? I would rather prefer that you kill me. You know, you shot me dead. So, you know, moral, he, he, uh, so moral was this person, yeah? High moral person with values uh, which he could sacrifice, for example, for the sake of these values. 
So he wrote one of the most iconic Uzbek novels. In fact, he wrote the first, uh, we can say the first Uzbek novel, because before him, the Uzbek literature existed in poetry form. All the novels were poetic forms, like, for example, you know, Shakespeare's tragedies so, uh, or Marlowe's tragedies. Everything was written in verse. He was the first who brought the prose into Uzbek uh, literature. And he wrote a novel which was called Days by Gone. It was about the last days of the, uh, you know, of the traditional Uzbek Khanates in the end of the uh, 19th century. So the story itself, it goes like that. A person from Tashkent goes to Margilan which is one of the cities in Fergana Valley. If to give the sort of, you know, the equivalent of uh, English equivalent, a Londonese chap goes to Yorkshire, let's say, yeah? And without any consent of his uh, parents, he falls in love there with a local lady, young lady. And he marries her without any consent of his uh, mother and father. He returns to his uh, uh, hometown, to Tashkent, and uh, leaves his wife at the place in Yorkshire, let's say. Yeah, He comes back and parents are unhappy. They want him to marry a local girl, be it Sussex girl or Essex girl, but they want something local. And he says them, he admits that he is already married, but they insist, especially his mother insists, and he marries the second wife. And then the first wife comes to him because he wants, because he loves her. And there is this rivalry between two wives. And the younger wife, the Essex or Sussex girl, poisons the Yorkshire girl. That is the novel. And because he is so unhappy to lose his love, he decides to end his life fighting the Russian conquest, you know, because at the same time Russian were, uh, Russians were conquering Central Asia. And he dies in one of the battles. That is the novel. It became one of the most iconic Uzbek novels of all time. Ask any Uzbek, any Uzbek family, they would keep this uh, novel somewhere along with Koran, you know, along with the holy books. It has been translated in many languages, including recently into English as well. So... That is his novel, and he became very famous in the 1920s, 1930s. He wrote several other novels as well. And then in the 1937, he was going around, and we've got the, uh, you know, memories, memoirs of different people saying to them, I am going to write another novel about the last century, about the time of the great game. I am going to write a novel about not the slave girl, but one of the girls who became the wife of three khans or kings, local kings. They were fighting for her. They were waging wars because of her. She was like a, a Samarkandi Helen of Troy, let's say, Helen of Samarkand. And he wanted to write a novel about her. And he started to collect material about her. We know roughly what this novel should have been about. But they say he even started to write this novel uh, in his manuscripts. But unfortunately, on the 31st of December 1937, he was arrested by NKVD. 
and shot dead after, you know, 10 months in uh, being imprisoned. He was shot dead on the 5th of October 1938. All his manuscripts were taken by NKVD and they were burnt out. And we haven't got anything left from his manuscripts, apart from these, uh, you know, memoirs of other people that he wanted to write this novel. So that is his life, and I decided we'll be talking about that, how I came to this idea, how I came up with this idea. But we can talk about that, but that is his life. So this is the story that you tell in this in this novel, this great lost novel, the heroine of this novel, Oihon. Tell us who she is. She is this lady who he wanted to depict. Yeah? In his novel, he used to say, I'm going to write this novel in a such manner that it will supersede all I've written before. It'll be so beautiful that everyone will forget what I wrote before that. So that we know. Therefore, she was one of the ultimate beauties of that time, you know, because three kings were fighting for her. She was ultimate beauty. But we know that she was in love with her boy, you know, and she wanted to marry another boy. But she was taken by one of the kings. And there are different views about her. Some people, until now, the majority of people considered her as the luckiest woman of this earth, you know, who was on this earth because three kings were after her and she was enjoying the company of three kings. But very often they forget that they were forcing her to marry, you know, whereas he had her love, you know, he had her plans, he wanted to marry her beloved person, and so on and so forth. But she was, uh, you know, forced to marry those kings, you know, who were in a way, uh, you know, humiliating her, insulting her, trumping, basically, you know, her honor and uh, her personality. The novel that we're talking about, The Devil's Dance, tells the story of, of Kadiri, he's in prison. He wants to write this novel about this woman, Oihan, and the three Khans. But as you said, all of the manuscripts that he made have gone, they've been burned. We have some hearsay about what it might have been about. Now, of course, in reconstructing this, you could have just made it up, that's fine. But how do you go about telling this story and staying true to Kaderi's vision for it. One thing, I read everything Kaderi wrote, yeah, and I love what he writes uh, because he is a master of the prose, you know, he master of the Uzbek language. He used to call himself, uh, you know, a thief. <laughs> In what sense a thief? He used to go to Chaykhana's tier houses, like to the pubs, yeah, uh, local pubs of Uzbekistan, and listen to people, you know, and he would imitate wonderful characters, you know, he would imitate them through the words, for example. Any person, for example, which he describes is a, a live person, you know, you can immediately imagine this person sitting in front of you or talking to you because he describes him so well through his speech, through his uh, habits, through his gestures. So he is a wonderful writer. Therefore, I learned quite a lot 
from him. At the same time, I must say that initially he wasn't on my radars, you know, for this novel. Initially, I wanted to pay tribute to this country because I'm living in this country for 25 years, you know, and uh, I owe this country something, you know. And I wanted to write something about the great game. When the English people were discovering uh, Samarkand, Bukhara, some of them, they even lost their heads there, you know, they were beheaded, uh, Captain Connolly or Colonel Stoddart, they were beheaded there. So they paid quite a lot of price to learn what kind of people lived there. And I wanted to bring them into life as well, uh, all those connections between the Central Asia and this country. So my idea was to write something about the great game. At the same time, I had an idea to write a novel about our wonderful poet, the contemporary of uh, Abdullah Qadri, whose name is Cholpan. He is of the scale of Yeats, of the scale of, you know, uh, Thomas Stan Eliot. He is our, uh, you know, treasure in poetry of the 20th century. And I wanted to write something about him. But then I realized that he was a contemporary to Qadri who wanted to write about that time as well. And all of a sudden, everything came together. You know, I decided to write a stereoscopical novel, one about the great game, but through this Oihon, poor Oihon. Ultimately, Captain Connolly meets Oihon in my novel. So uh, there is a moment of uh, fiction there, lots of moments of fiction. But at the same time, I think because I was following all the documents available, including the diaries of Captain Connolly and uh, Stoddart, including lots of documents of people who were ascertaining their fate in Samarkand and Bukhara. So I went through tons of the material. And therefore, I was absolutely sure that I can write something interesting about that time based on these documents, but at the same time to give some uh, sort of liberty to my uh, imagination. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Hamid Ismailov. We're talking about his novel, The Devil's Dance, which was translated from the Uzbek into English by Donald Rayfield and has just recently won the EBRD Literature Prize 2019. And Hamid, that time, the time of Stalin and the Soviet Union is gone now. Um, Uzbekistan is is again an independent country. But as you mentioned in the first part, you've not been back there since 1992. As a BBC person, I was in Uzbekistan several times. I've been to Uzbekistan several times, you know, but before 2005 mostly, because we had an office there. But in 2005, uh, after the massacre in Andijan, where the governmental forces uh, used disproportional uh, force against the civil population. So, and we were broadcasting from this event, you know, they decided to put a ban on uh, many of us, including myself, apparently. Maybe my writing played a certain role, maybe my journalism played a certain role, but my last attempt in 2017, when I was once again a member of the BBC delegation coming to Uzbekistan, they allowed every member of the delegation, but they disallowed me and deported from the airport, not explaining why, not explaining uh, who gave this order or whatever. They just said that you are in the lists, so please go with us. So I spent uh, four or five hours in a kind of cell there, and then uh, they put me into the plane to Istanbul and deported me. So that is the story, uh, how it goes about why I'm there, uh, of my relationship with Uzbekistan. I don't know why they are banning, for example, my work, why I am in this so-called list, and so on and so forth. I never, you know, wrote any manifestos, or I can't see in my work any subversive motives, purely political, uh, or whatever, you know. I think, I can guess, I can guess that, you know, any honest uh, writer is subversive by his or her nature. Because what the honest writer does, he describes or she describes the reality. But the authorities, they've got their own sort of, you know, version of reality. That we are living in paradise, that we are absolutely happy people, and so on and so forth. So when you are breaking their image of reality, you are becoming immediately subversive. I think it's more about my aesthetics, like Sinevsky said, you know, rather than uh, anything political, you know. We have differences on aesthetical, on cultural ground, I think, in understanding the reality of nowadays Uzbekistan, realities of nowadays world. And yet you're bringing Uzbek culture, writing, its poetry to a worldwide audience. Why do they not see that? Once again, it's, uh, you know, quite enigmatic thing and uh, it's a puzzle for me, you know. Puzzle to the extent that, for example, they've announced the prize, EBRD prize for this book. As any Uzbek, you should be proud that Uzbek literature is recognized by the world, by the specialists, experts, readers, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I know recently, for example, Union of uh, Uzbek Writers gathered and... 
some of the representatives of this union said this award is a plot against Uzbekistan, political plot against Uzbekistan. We have to disclose who is behind, what kind of groups are behind of that. We should protect our youth uh, of uh, sort of, you know, of this novel and so on and so forth. It's a Stalin in language, you know. It's exactly the language which uh, poor Abdullah Qadri was suffering from, you know, or Cholpan or Fitrat and many others were suffering from. And it's a modern 21st uh, uh, century Uzbekistan. So sometimes I'm wondering what happens there. This book has just recently been translated and published in English, but it's not a new novel. Um, you wrote it, I think, in 2012, and... Your work is banned in Uzbekistan. So how do you get Uzbeks to read your work? For example, with this book, when I wrote this book and uh, when I was sure that uh, the book is ready, I started to publish uh, this book chapter by chapter on my Facebook and it became, in a way, viral, you know. People started to repost it, to share, to publish in newspapers in the neighboring countries, to print it out and hand over to different people. It became something, you know. I've got plenty, plenty, thousands of emails or Facebook sort of, you know, comments and so on and so forth from the, that time. So it became an event for people. Sometimes, for example, with my other books, for example, I read them and I put on YouTube, let's say, as a, a full uh, audio book. Once again, people read, people listen to these books. So there, are, there is social media now. So it's very difficult to censor nowadays, you know, especially with the Internet, with the, uh, all kind of chat groups and so on and so forth. So I can't see the, this as a problem. But there is sort of aggressive silencing. That is a problem. For example, they don't mention uh, or People are not allowed to mention my name, let's say, yeah? If they mention, so they face apparently some kind of, you know, problems or whatever. And I've seen many, for example, uh, especially on the Facebook, for example, someone is commenting, saying, for example, why we're not uh, publishing Hamid Ismailov's book, uh, suggesting to the publishers, yeah? Next week I'm looking, this comment has gone, for example, immediately, you know, so it was deleted. So apparently there were pressure on this person to take it out. So I can feel and I can see that there is this aggressive silencing about my name. But what can I do? All I can, I can just put on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, or on YouTube or other social media. So Karimov, who was the, the post-Soviet leader of Uzbekistan, um, and who was obviously in charge when, when you were banned, is dead now. Um, but still, you know, that's that's a while ago now and, and still you're not allowed back as it stands. Um, are you hopeful that this will change in the future? I don't know. The strange thing was uh, I was believing that uh, with Karimov all this ban has gone. But as I'm saying, you know, I was a member of official delegation in 2017 when the new president was in full full power already. And yet they didn't allow me. And those signals which are coming now, for example, from this, uh, from this uh, you know, union of Uzbek writers are quite worrying, you know. These kind of, uh, you know, signals, they were not even during the Karimov time, <laughs> funny enough, you know. 
what happens on the one hand i'm optimistic because the country is opening up economically liberalizing opened up to other countries of the region there are lots of positives you know but on the other hand there are these issues for example when i look at my personal affairs for example i can see all these troubling moments what does it mean for you that the book has won this prize the ebrd literature prize For me first of all it's recognition of the Uzbek literature because luckily this book is about Uzbek literature in different forms it's about the court poetry it's about the women poets it's about the uh, poetry competitions it's about the one of our best writers of the 20th century it's about the best poets of the 20th century it's in a way encyclopedia of uzbek literary life and i'm bringing i'm proud that people are reading and in a way i'm serving as a bridge between my literature and readers uh, all over the world just to finish us off then um normally i would say would you read as a selection from the novel but um i know you've got something in uzbek so would you read us something in uzbek You know as a tribute to the translators yeah I myself was a translator for many years I used to translate different uh, poems different especially poems why I'm paying tribute to translators for example this book was translated by Donald Rayfield and he specifically learned Uzbek on the basis of his Turkish to translate this book these are wonderful people who are bringing different cultures to this country you know they should be treasured by all of us in donald's note about the translation at the back of the book he mentions one of the difficulties of translating or learning uzbek is that there's been numerable alphabets replaced in the uzbek language over the past century why was that that was you know due to due to the political changes for example Traditionally the Uzbek alphabet was the Arabic one but with the October revolution they decided to it's the end of the religion it's the end of Islam it's the end of the Arabic influence therefore they decided to change it into Latin so then they've uh, once again they've improved this Latin once again then they decided to bring it closer to the Russian language in the 40s they decided to, to change the latin into cyrillic after the independence they decided to be closer to the open world and decided once again to go for the latin now they are thinking once again to change this latin and be closer to the turkish world so it's non stop changing of uh, the alphabet and it's disaster because with every change of the alphabet the you know cultural uh, sort of you know cultural level of people is dropping because for example those who read arabic they couldn't read in cyrillic or in uh, latin for example those who read in latin they couldn't read in cyrillic for example over the last 25 years those people who were studying latin they can't read in cyrillic but 90% of the fiction was published in cyrillic only 10% of fiction was published uh, in uh, latin and exactly the sort of you know the ratio is the other way around in scientific books you know those uh, who are in cyrillic they can't read uh, the new scientific books whereas those people are left without fiction so it's always a disaster 
I'll read you one poem of Paul Verlaine, you know, the, which is Le Sanglo Long de Vialon, but I'll read it in Uzbek, in my own translation. Ohu fron rejeximon cuscunler, del ortanar goyo sonar sos unler, yergebrok solert trok sot bongeson sakuyosh, token de yosh umrum tongue, shu shu derhal sauk shamal menacular, unden narcheng singer, hazan burla, hazan burla. I've been talking to Hamid Ismailov. We've been talking about his novel, The Devil's Dance, um, which was originally published in Uzbek and is translated into English by Donald Rayfield in this edition, which is by Tilted Access Press. Hamid, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.